welcome to this special bonus episode of Republic Forces Radio Network, bringing you coverage of Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 6. Our hosts will be recapping and reviewing each arc of these Netflix-exclusive final Clone Wars episodes. Hello and welcome to Republic Forces Radio Network. I'm Jonathan, and after six years, almost 150 episodes, and countless hours of editing, Republic Forces Radio Network looks to be coming to a close. Joining me tonight in this summation of it all is Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Dan the Rockstar. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Jen. Hey, guys. Barrent. Hey, everybody. Master Collect them all from the forums. I'm glad to be here. And with our ending starts a new beginning, which we'll talk about later. But with that new beginning, we have a new face, Mark. Hello there. So tonight we're talking about the final four episodes of season six of The Clone Wars. The Lost One, Voices, Destiny, and Sacrifice. And in this arc, actually the four episodes, the first episode, The Lost One, kind of acts as a standalone But it does feed into the following three very well. But we're going to be dealing with these individually. But when looking at these four episodes as a whole, I kind of want to ask the panel what they thought of this this way they decided to end the Clone Wars. And we'll go with ladies first. Jen? Oh, as usual, my of two minds thing. There were parts of this arc that I thought was really neat there were some loose ends that they kind of actually tied up that i've been wondering about for ages and then there were some things that they were doing with the force and how it works that i'm still trying to wrap my brain around so so it was interesting i think i would have preferred to have like maybe the clone arc or one of the other ones end everything but it it wasn't that bad barrett why don't you give us your thoughts well ahsoka leaving is always going to be my ending you know i i like the i like what Jerry had said about bookends, about the beginning of Ahsoka, the beginning of the Clone Wars is where Ahsoka joined and we met her, and then the ending of the Clone Wars is where she leaves. So that's always going to be my ending. But as far as this being the last arc that we get, I thought it's just like kind of like how the other arcs were. It answers some questions, but gives us a lot more questions to get the answers for. So overall, I think we're going to get into it, and I think we're going to have a lot of different opinions on what we liked and and some of the things I think they could have done better, and but it, it was it was good. It was it it was the quality of of the arc was just as good as any of the other quality of the arcs in the, in this season. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to leave it a little uh, ambiguous until we get to the end of our comments. But I, I enjoyed this arc. Well, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Dan, what did you think of these episodes? The arc as a whole, I enjoyed. Even with the the obvious things that fly in the face of everything that we thought we knew, individually, episode-wise, this first one felt a little kind of disjointed, and even including it with with the arc kind of doesn't sit well with me still. But it does kind of lead them down the path, which leads to the next three that are more of a solid arc. So overall, wasn't bad. There are some things I know we're going to get into them. Some things that just having watched them two, three times don't feel quite right and make me scratch my head. But for an ending, it's not as good, like Barrett said, as the Ahsoka ending. But it does wrap things up pretty well. Nathan, enlighten us. 
You know, I think when I watched these the first time through, and we got going, and I just rewatched the Order 66 arc. It's the only one I had seen twice. Um, I had said that this season felt like it was on par with season five as what might be my favorite season of the show. Going through and rewatching them, I find that this is the weakest arc out of the four of this season. Uh, episodes I really liked stylistically that I had fun with the first time I watched, and then going back through to watch them to summarize for my timeline, to watch them to take notes for this. All these questions start popping up that show that this is a really poorly constructed set of episodes. Their consistency, not just with legend stuff, because it doesn't have to match, but it's consistency with the films in some cases and the consistency in some cases with itself. It just doesn't really work the way that it is supposed to. All flash, very little substance, and the substance that is there leaves you kind of scratching your head. I think I would agree um, with you guys that it would have been better for the series to end with Ahsoka leaving, even if technically the first episodes chronologically don't have her in it, the first two of them that happened prior to the film itself for Clone Wars. It would have probably been better if they had taken some of these arcs and done with them what the Clovis arc was supposed to have originally done, which was to slide them into earlier seasons and just make these happen to be episodes in which Ahsoka didn't appear. Reference that she's off on another mission somewhere or something. Um, instead, the, the final scene gives you a nice kind of iris out, everybody, kind of moment. But it's one of those arcs that you either got to watch it once and go, yeah, Clone Wars is over, that was great. Or watch it a second time and be like, ooh, that's how they ended it? Except the final scene. And Mark is uh, our newbie, to this group anyway. Why don't you share your thoughts on this arc? Man, this one, as a four-part arc, really threw me. Uh, I loved the first part. I think the first part, if they just stopped right at the last one and called that the end, I think I'd have been more happy. Because, like everyone else, I was more scratching my head. It felt very much like Mortis. I, I, and I haven't had that many times to watch the Mortis arc as I have this one. Uh, you know, now that's on Netflix, we've been watching the heck out of it. And my son, especially this season, we've just been, you know, hammering it and hammering it. And I still don't get it. I mean, I, the, I watch it and like Nathan said, I mean, you know, this is a product that, that bridges two universes. It, it, it meshes with the legends, albeit it kind of train wrecks with it, but also the side of it that deals only with the films. And so I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around the two you know, canons there or continuities there of how it applies. And it's just, I, it makes me just hit the reset. I default and go, what? Okay, my turn. Well, kind of like Nathan, my initial viewing of these episodes, I thought they were kind of neat. I thought they were cool. I thought they looked awesome. And I thought it kind of dealt with pieces of forced lore that really hadn't been explored. Upon rewatching, because everyone knows I watched these several times, I had a bit of a problem. The first problem was actually staying awake. For some reason, these, especially the last three episodes in this arc, I kept dozing off. I don't know what it was. There were a lot of really good points or a lot of really fun points, but overall, I just kind of found them confusing. And I'm really hoping that through this conversation tonight, we can kind of piece together and maybe I could find a new appreciation for these episodes that I didn't have before. But, kicking off this arc, we have The Lost One. And in The Lost One, it opens with Plo Koon and his wolf pack going after a lost ship that turns out to be the ship of the Jedi Master, Sifo-Dyas. It was first mentioned in Attack of the Clones as being the individual who commissioned the clone army. 
And I have to say that this was kind of an interesting sequence. I liked it because I really did like the look of some of these clone troopers going through this hostile environment and even the little changes they made with Plo Koon. What do you guys think of how they opened this? Strong, weak, and we'll start with Jen again. This was probably my one of my favorite parts of the whole arc, to be honest, because it really grabbed me and got me kind of intrigued because the sifo kind of quandary has been going on since the Clone Wars movie came out, Attack of the Clones came out, and we've been, I've been dying to know, like, has anybody researched this guy? Like, did, was this in his, you know, psychological profile to go ordering masses of clones behind people's backs? And and so the tidbit, the kind of the dangling the carrot of we might get some information on that, and in this kind of gritty, like, really visually interesting way was, was really fun, and I, I liked it a lot. Barrett, how about you? One of the things when you have a beginning like this where you have their uh, they're in a snowstorm or excuse me a sandstorm or some other terrain you know any type of storm and they have the different clone armors so this is like sand trooper armor or sandstorm armor or whatever man it really breaks my heart they're not making any more of these toys i mean there's there's a few things throughout this arc that i'm just like oh man if they could just make that into a toy you know, I'm going to have to maybe start customizing my my clone troopers into some of the Sandstorm armor. But I like the opening. You know, I think it's well received to get any information about Sifo-Dyas, any information about Jedi that had to do with with starting the Clone Wars or the background, the the workings behind the scenes that started this whole war. So I liked it. You know, I Sifo-Dyas is bald. I did not know that. You know, so I found that out. Sifo-Dyas is bald. Um, I have a lot of questions, though, uh, concerning this first episode, where I think that you said, Jonathan, where you said it, it didn't, the, the beginning of this arc you don't think really fits. But I have some questions that I'm going to ask you guys where I think it really does fit to open the door to some interesting topics. But let's proceed. Mark, enlighten us with your thoughts, please. Oh, I thought the opening was brilliant. Uh, you know, for me, the sifo angle and what, you know, the Darth Tyrannus part where the Jedi didn't know that Dooku was him. I mean, you know, even in the opening crawls, you know, they talk about the Sith Lord Count Dooku. And it's like, why didn't they why didn't they always just say it was him? And so I've always been wondering, you know, are they ever going to find it out? And, you know, Legends has given us a few little tidbits here and there that kind of paint the picture. But they've also, I believe, kind of conflicted with each other because there's the aspect of, well, did he... Did Dooku kill Sifo-Dyas and then poses him and place the order, or did he, he convince Sifo-Dyas to place the order, or did Plagueis convince him to place the order, and then after he placed the order, then Dooku killed him? So that never played out. Now now that you have that whole, you know, as I like to call it, decan, and the official film canning universe starting, and this falls under both those, you know, I gotta look at it with both those vision goggles on, and it really perplexes me so hard, because, you know, you got all this stuff from Legends that can apply to that universe, and then you've got just the film side of things, and even when I just ditch everything from Legends, I'm still left confused with the later stuff that we get. But when it came to that opening, though, it, I was I was exactly drawn in, like you guys were talking about, I mean, the, the attention to detail to Pokloon's breathing apparatus, when he picks the lightsaber up, and the dust particles of the sand as it's fallen off, I'm just like, don't don't ignite it! You know, I mean, it's been sitting there in the sand for, for you know the maker knows how long i mean you could ignite that thing and blow his hand off but it was cool i mean as soon as he ignites it they're pretty much oh yeah now we know it's here and i'm i'm immediately like okay who set off the the you know the beacon i mean was that always going off and they just happened to find it now i mean there was that part of things too that i i started questioning and the more i rewatched it the more i really enjoyed it but i was always questioning that like who set the beacon off why did the beacon go off now nathan 
you know, I thought the way that it played out was pretty cool looking. And the idea that they find this shuttle and they're able to use that information to start this hunt. I mean, at least it's not something where they they realize after, you know, over a decade, oh, gee, maybe we should figure out what happened to Sifo-Dyas when that kind of feels like what they're doing in a lot of ways. And it's like, oh, well, he's dead and we believe the body was cremated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nobody ever really thought to look more into that. But now we're going to look into it more because now we happen to find this, sh this shuttle. At least it was because they find the shuttle as opposed to it just being somebody brings him up in conversation and now they start looking into it. Uh, the look of that opening, the whole inspired by Close Encounters of the Third Kind kind of thing going on um, was cool. But I got to say, um, the continuity geek in me, uh, being someone who is, is kind of trying to get my head around as Marky is this idea of the new canon or whatever you want to call it, the story group directed stuff versus the old stuff that's come before, the official continuity legends, whatever you want to call it, um, I cringed the moment they picked up the lightsaber. Because as cool as it was to say, it's Sifo-Dyas' lightsaber and such, um, part of me was going, no, but he gave, Dooku killed him and gave that to Grievous! So, oh, that's one part of that, part of the continuity gone. Unless, of course, you just say, hey, you had a couple different lightsabers, deal with it. So, yeah, nice looking, but uh, the, the lightsaber thing did cause me to cringe, I do have to say. Nathan, I think we're going to have to put you in continuity therapy. You got to let it go. Oh, hey, I don't need it anymore. Now they all of my issues are nice and compartmentalized, and I can go on. I, I, I'm waiting with bated breath to be able to deal with Rebels and not have to think about how's it fit with the old stuff, because it won't. It's not supposed to. No, relieving. <laughs> Amen. And Dan, we've been waiting patiently for your thoughts on the opening. Well, honestly, they could have done pretty much whatever the crap they wanted to as soon as Blue Coon and the Wolfpack strode it out. I was in. I didn't care what, what they did. They could have been chaperoning Jar Jar and Bird Lady's next date. I, I, I was there. Happily, what followed was a little bit intriguing. I was able to overlook some of the glaring things that, yeah, I also knew about the... the Sifo-Dyas is lightsaber going to Grievous, and there was a second where that was kind of like, um, no. But I was able to go with it because for one more episode of some good clone action that I was hoping was coming. And speaking of convoluted, we then move into the backstory of how Sifo-Dyas's ship ended up there. And this was something that I was... I won't say that I had difficulty keeping up with it, but it just seemed needlessly involved that Sifo-Dyas was going one place and he ended up another and he was supposed to be negotiating a truce and then suddenly there was somebody else on the mission with him and then he was killed. I just felt it was, I mean, especially we've got to come back to the idea that this is somewhat for kids and I can't really see kids kind of sticking here for this one. Um, Barrett, as a parent, what do you think? Well, I watched these with Pharaoh and, you know, he's a little older. You know, I, I, I think that he didn't, this was one of the times where he didn't really want to understand it. sifo you know, because it's not a Jedi or something that has been on screen a lot, you know? So I think they, they show a picture of sifo but it doesn't really mean much to him, you know, because it's not into the movies. It's not in the movies. He doesn't have a big adventure. So um, Pharaoh, I don't think he was as interested. I think I was more interested uh, than he was. And I think this arc was for maybe 
as you say, Jonathan, maybe not for kids. I think it, it was for the hardcore fans, uh, you know, and some arcs should be. But I like the scene with Valorum. You know, we don't get very much of Valorum in the movies and in Attack of the Clones. Uh, he's almost kind of shown as being weak in the movies. You know, they just kind of have a coup on him and he just kind of gives up without a fight. But here it shows him how he can kind of be presidential, for lack of a better word, or as he can be the chancellor, the high chancellor, I think they call him. And, you know, he's very regal. He's very knowledgeable. You know, he he's very honest. You can see how he's a leader. And I like that portrayal of of Valorum and the way that he and Yoda are able to communicate together and, and work together. So it, it you can see that history. It really was convoluted. And, and I felt like the further this episode progressed, the more not really lost, but just kind of boggled I was. Just like it got kept getting more complicated and they kept kind of throwing in more twists and like like this guy being held at this planet with these gangster, you know, aliens and it just got more and more complicated and I didn't really understand why it had to be so complicated. So I don't know. It it it, it works sort of, I guess. I just I don't know if I agree with the choices they made. But how cool were the aliens though they're all getting high i mean spice has been kind of the word for drugs you know they don't really say it's drugs <laughs> you know because they don't want to say that han solo is a drug smuggler but that's basically what he is i mean they come out and say it valorum says this spice is made to use for drugs and there he goes in there uh anakin and obi-wan go in there and they're all getting high and i'm like whoa and by this time, Pharaoh has left the room. You know, he's disinterested. And thank goodness, because they're smoking it up. And I'm thinking, this is pretty bold for Star Wars. Land of the Towelies. Now, Barrett, you're calling them the aliens. These are the Pikes. And we have seen the Pikes before in one of our favorite arcs last season. The Knight Brothers arc. Yes. They were one of uh, Maul's cohorts in taking over Mandalore, if you remember. I remember that, and I thought they were cool then, and I think they're cool now. You know, very Egyptian, kind of like, with the gold and, and everything, and I, I, I think they're very cool. Now, Mark, did you have the same type of issue with the convoluted nature of Sifo-Dyas' tour, or did you, were you okay with it? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I kind of was under the impression that they went to Felucia, and the two of them were there. Then they got called by... Uh, Valorum to go to the Pike negotiations. They were in the middle of that when the outbreak happened back on Felucian had to go back and then they got kicked in the middle by the Pikes uh, which like Baron I, I too I, I kind of had a momentary pause with them uh, you know doing their, their token of the spice and, and the casual passing of the alcohol and stuff like that and I'm like don't drink that don't you learn anything but at the same time, I, I thought it was kind of cool because it gave them kind of like, you know, the huts are kind of like the mob and these guys kind of had the gangster feel. You know, I was just like waiting for Tupac to walk around the corner or something because they definitely had that, that you know, don't mess with these guys. They don't care about you kind of thing. I mean, when he was like trivializing, oh, yes, the Jedi Sifo-Dyas came here a long time ago. I mean, he had that like, I own you and the way that they played all the events and stuff and, and, and kept it for insurance. That side of things, I, I, I agree with you. I thought it was a bold step, but I was kind of more encouraged by it than, than I, I didn't kick my son out of the room or anything, but I, I thought about it. I was just like, oh, that is kind of, I mean, he was full on just going for it. Nathan, I found myself wondering how this fit, this episode and when everything is going on, how it fit with 
what we knew or what we thought we knew in the movies. Because when I always heard about Sifo-Dyas, I when they talk about him in Attack of the Clones, he died more than 10 years ago in Attack of the Clones, which was just about The Phantom Menace or right before. Am I misremembering? No, you've got it right. Apparently, the episode doesn't manage to get it right, though. Um, okay, this is where I need permission for mini rant, sir. Granted. All right. Okay, so uh, we know Sifo-Dyas from this episode used to be part of the Jedi Council. He was booted because of his unorthodox views. That is interesting and probably conflicts with some legend stuff. But this is an episode that has issues with legends and the movies and even, in a sense, itself. Okay. As for contradicting legends, this it's information that may have been from Lucas. Lucas tended to provide some information about Sifo-Dyas to give them direction where to go on him because it was such a closely guarded secret. Um, so what stuff came specifically from Lucas on that versus not is kind of iffy. Um, but either way, um, in Legends, Dooku was said to have cut down Sifo-Dyas in a saber duel as his final test to become a Sith Lord. Here, he still winds up killing him, but it's through ordering his death. Not a huge issue, but here we are told that it's as Tyrannus, so he was presumably a Sith Lord prior to having him killed, unless he was using Tyrannus as a code name of some kind, like Maul being Maul before being Darth Maul, but the assumption in that case was that Maul's name was Maul. It wasn't a Sith code name at all. So some question as to the naming issue here and the timing of it, whether this was a Sith test, but that's in relation to Legends. Even taking that out of play, as the new canon and such does, its own discussion of past events doesn't make a lot of chronological sense. Okay, according to Lucas, who in that case does seem to have provided the info to Lucasfilm to use in spin-offs as one of the handful of things he actually directed himself, Dooku left the Jedi Order and was then corrupted by Sidious to become a Sith Lord after the death of his old Padawan, Qui-Gon Jinn, proved to be this whole last straw in his crumbling faith in the Jedi. Okay? That never quite made sense with the idea of Dooku being the one to erase Kamino from the archives, because he'd have had little chance to do that after he became a Sith Lord, and he wouldn't really have had much of a reason to do it before becoming a Sith Lord. So what, did he go back into the temple somehow? That always seemed to suggest he was maybe a Sith Lord prior to Qui-Gon's death in the Phantom Menace, or at least became a Sith in the Jedi Temple before he left. It wasn't leaving, then corrupted. It was corrupted, then leaving. Um, but that was never how it played out, though, in any of the novels and the comics and such, as directed by the facts that were given to Lucasfilm by Lucas. And now we get a story where Dooku, as Tyrannus, and thus presumably as a Sith Lord, orders the death of Sifo-Dyas, while Sifo-Dyas is on a sort of three-part mission, right? Obadiah, but then he, for Falorum, then diverted to Felucia for the clan conflict, then back to Obadiah, where he is shot down and killed on the way. Never mind the whole supposedly two Jedi on Felucia, but it was him and Silman. What did they think? Silman was a Jedi? Was Tyrannus there? They never really cleared that up. But the Obadiah portion of the mission was ordered by the Supreme Chancellor. Valorum, not Palpatine. Meaning that the mission had to have begun before or during the beginning of the Phantom Menace. But Dooku's a Sith in ordering his death, which Lucas said happened after the Phantom Menace. So either Lucas has shifted the timing of Dooku becoming a Sith to something that frankly makes a little more sense with Attack of the Clones anyway, in my opinion, thereby creating a problem in the Legends continuity, but not in this new canon or this episode, or we're supposed to believe that the mission to Obadiah began before or during the Phantom Menace, and then the interrupting mission to Felucia must last into, through, and until at least a little bit after the Phantom Menace in order for Dooku to become Tyrannus and all evil to order his old buddy's death at the hands of the Pike Syndicate. 
Otherwise, the continuity of this episode's own depiction of past events just doesn't make sense. It's as if no one was checking this episode's own internal logic, which sadly is going to be something we'll see in the other three episodes, too. This was where my faith in this arc started to break, and as soon as this logic went out the window... I kind of went back and as I was re-watching, was looking at it with a more critical eye. And there really are a lot of inconsistencies here. But this one chronologically doesn't even seem to match the films. And that's insane. I didn't pick this apart quite to that detail. But I did catch the, the, the timeline inconsistencies, as I said. And what it made me question, and, and tell me what you guys think about this, is that if, in fact, Dooku was a Sith, or a Sith apprentice, or something to the effect where he might be getting the title of Tyrannus prior to the Phantom Menace, does that mean that Sidious had already rejected Maul as his true heir? And if that was the case, was Maul ever supposed to be his true heir? Or for that matter, was Dooku ever supposed to be his true heir? Or are these just tools that he's dangling the mantle of Sith Lord in front of to get what he needs and then will dispose of them? How many of y'all have read... Darth Plagueis that was that was directly influenced by Lucas's involvement it was actually listed as this novel is canon inside the little solicitation text in the arcs the uh, advanced copies before the final copies and it being booted out of canon. How many of y'all read Plagueis? Oh, of course I did. Me. Okay. No, not yet. And Mark, I know you have because we've talked about it on the show. Yep. Lucas apparently had the idea that he fed to Lucino or however it got to him, that Plagueis is alive all the way up to the middle or near the end of The Phantom Menace, and that all throughout, it's almost like they are seeing Maul as a pawn who's never really meant to be a true Sith apprentice. He's basically a pawn who's there until Sidious can find someone better, and in the eyes of the Plagueis-Sidious dynamic, it wasn't really breaking the rule of two because he was just kind of this means to an end, someone to be manipulated into thinking he'd someday truly be a Sith Lord, uh, or at least one uh, that was never meant to share the power in the first place. Assuming Lucas's influence on that was the case, then now we have something even more convoluted if he's also bringing in Tyrannus around the same time. And the book Plagueis wasn't the first time that that idea had come up. As I recall, that was also discussed in Labyrinth of Evil, where they said that Maul was always just an animal, a tool. And that at least Dooku envisioned himself as being the true heir and that Maul never was intended to be. So, again, obviously that's not in canon anymore, but it does really muddy the waters. But moving on, Anakin and Obi-Wan follow a lead and they end up on Obadiah to follow up with the Pikes. And they encounter the former... I guess, uh, Senate advisor Silman, who has gone around the bend a little bit. At the same time, Sidious, having caught wind of the Jedi's interest in following up on Sifo-Dyas, has ordered Dooku to clean up his mess. And this makes for a back half of an episode that I think actually worked pretty well. I really did enjoy that the confrontation, and even though we've gotten so many confrontations between Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Dooku that I'm almost kind of sick of it, I thought this one worked pretty well. Dan, what about you? Did you like how this particular episode kind of resolved itself? I liked the uh, the battle, the give and take between Anakin and Obi-Wan, but unfortunately, where this episode falls in the Clone Wars series. And, you know, knowing that uh, within the first 30 to 45 minutes of Revenge of the Sith, 
Anakin and Dooku get into it, and Anakin spits the line, my powers have doubled since last we met last uh, count. Yeah, we, we've talked about this over the course of this series. You know, it's gone from that being the end of Attack of the Clones to that being last week. And this just really, as good as that fight was and as well as it fit in this instance, that just kept popping into my head. My powers have doubled since last week, Count. This time we'll do it together again. Again. And I agree with you. That always comes into my mind whenever Dooku and Anakin have a confrontation. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, if that one line wasn't there, that one line. So maybe in future versions of Revenge of the Sith, they'll uh, they'll edit that out. The Revenge of the Sith special edition. You know, it's only a matter of time. Does it make sense to you guys how this kind of all played, you know, with do- the Dooku Tyrannus and I guess the revelation that Anakin and Obi-Wan have that Dooku is Tyrannus? Did that work or did it leave you flat? Jen? I guess my concern immediately was somewhat Obi-Wan it was in Attack of the Clones has heard that name before and and he knows that that's the person who is kind of involved in the clones and setting them up at least a little bit he got that from Jango and I feel like they should have like run screaming back to the Jedi Council and been like hey our clones remember the ones that were going glitchy before and there's that tumor thing now we have another problem they were commissioned by the Sith hey that's a problem and of course they didn't. So that was kind of my issue with that. But like, as far as the episode, the way the episode panned out, it kind of felt like the mob putting a hit out on someone who had been kind of snooping too close. And it actually kind of worked really well. And Dooku gets to be all badass and he steps backwards off of that platform onto his ship and everything. And I thought that was actually kind of fun. Now, see, I love the line that Dooku has during their battle that, you know, Obi-Wan, I I told you everything you needed to know back on Geonosis, which is really true. He 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 really put the truth out there and Obi-Wan misinterpreted it. Doesn't that make what he's saying now? It, it's kind of illogical for him to say it now, though. If the whole thing is to try to keep themselves secret. I mean, granted, this arc basically blows the lid off of any idea of the Sith actually caring about keeping their freaking Sith names a secret. But... It makes sense in Attack of the Clones when he's talking about what was going on and everything because he's trying to get Obi-Wan to join him, even claiming that Qui-Gon would have. Here, it only works if this is a taunt. If it has anything to do with, you know, the Sith's grand plan, it seems like this is kind of giving up a piece of information you really shouldn't give up to your enemies, as if he could really keep the secret anyway after having just been called Tyrannus in front of them. But it seems more like this really... I mean, this is a taunt, right? This isn't a plot hole. This is a taunt? No, see, here's the the thing about Dooku, okay? Here's the one thing I never understood about Dooku. Is is he really that evil? Or is his plan, like he told Obi-Wan in Attack of the Clones, is his plan really to root out the Sith, kill Sidious, and make peace for the, the universe? Because out of all the Sith that we see... Dooku never has the Sith eyes, okay? All the, Everybody else has the Sith eyes. He never has the Sith eyes. We even see a scene where Sifo-Dyas is Sith, and he has the Sith eyes. Dooku never has the Sith eyes. So I never understood that about Dooku. That always bothers me about him. Is he really putting himself... Is he really trying to do a good thing, you know? And then he does all these evil things. So it really confuses me uh, about Dooku. 
But the thing about the fights with Dooku is they're always good because his fighting style with the one arm behind his back, he looks very regal, very powerful, very confident. So all the fighting scenes with Dooku are, are gonna, is going to be good. But that's the thing I, I always have and that was never answered and that every time we have these fights with Dooku, I, I never understood if he's really that evil. You know, if he's if he is trying to kill Sidious himself, his plans may not be what the Sith plans are. He has his own plans. That's what I've always gotten from him. Yeah, I see. And, and that kind of goes with what I was thinking, because I kind of felt like he blew it when he choked out Silman and allowed himself to be caught doing it. I mean, Barris even had the you know sense to hide herself as she strangled that bounty hunter, that little street urchin and stuff and blamed Ahsoka. And that to me, it was like, okay, you're coming here to to keep your, you know, part of this secret. So yeah, you know, some things are better done by yourself. It's like, wait, what? Why are you doing that? You know. And then of course, you know, you have the name dropped. But that actually kind of goes with what Barrett's saying. I mean, I I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. With the lack of the Sith eyes and stuff, maybe he wanted them to finally figure it out. Okay. Well, before we move on to the next, I guess what I would call the core arc here. Does anybody have any? Final thoughts on how this episode fit. Uh, positives, negatives, what have you. All right, I do. Okay. We skipped a scene in this episode that I think <laughs> is very pivotal to the rest of the, the arc. And it's the scene where Yoda goes and talks to Chancellor Palpatine. And Yoda starts asking him about Sifo-Dyas. And they have, you know, Palpatine says, you know, it's not me. You need to go ta- talk to Chancellor Valorum. Or ex, or he's the ex-Chancellor. You need to go talk to Valorum. Now, here's the thing. I think that this scene here sets up what my theory is for the rest of the arc. And my theory is, is that when Yoda speaks to Palpatine, and this is my question to the group, when Yoda speaks to Palpatine, Palpatine puts in a plan to stop that and to get into Yoda's head. And we learn, when we, we're going to talk about it, what happens to Yoda. But I think this scene here starts the whole plan of Yoda, of the rest of the of the arc. And I think, what do you guys think about that? And maybe we should come back to that question once we discuss the rest of the arc. That makes a lot of sense, actually, in a lot of ways. It does apply very well to it. Uh, another scene, too, that, that I think, you know, it, it's critical we hit on is once the council got that information, I, I think Jen was actually talking about it, you know, and they decided to kind of sweep it under the carpet. I felt like that was like one of the biggest mistakes they could have ever done. I mean, they just found out about, you know, this trigger in the in the clones that caused them to kill the Jedi. Like, wait, how come no red alarms are going off here? <laughs> they do say they'll hide it from the Chancellor. And you sh- they do show Anakin not like that. So they are hiding things. And sweeping on the rug, you know, that 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 did not sit well with me. Yoda, Yoda is making a lot of mistakes, you know, towards the end of Re- Revenge of the Sith. They know the dark side's out there. They know it's looming, yet they continue to make these mistakes. But in this specifically for this arc, I think it's because the Sith have opened a door to Yoda's mind to be able for Qui-Gon to be able to communicate with him. And I think that's what makes this arc very interesting. Love the the battle sequence at the end. I think this would have been a pretty solid episode if they had gotten their timing straight of some of the information about the past. If they had just figured that out so it was a little more consistent and that it actually made sense in the end, even things like, you know, who was it actually on Felucia versus who was in the shuttle when it was shot down and making sure that was consistent, where is Dooku and all that kind of stuff, that would have been better or at least doing something where it didn't contradict so much. Even if they didn't tell us everything, just don't contradict yourself and the movies and Lucas. 
uh, in that regard. But the way the, the last half or so of the episode worked played out pretty well. I'm not going to buy into the theory that this is them somehow opening up Yoda's mind to be able to hear Qui-Gon, because Yoda heard Qui-Gon before in Attack of the Clones. When Anakin kills the Tuscans, you get the Anakin from Qui-Gon that Yoda hears at the same time that Yoda is sensing, you know, the, the anguish in Anakin that is so bad that even Mace walks in and is like, whoa, what's going on? So I wouldn't buy into that, but to say that this is something that would cause them to see Yoda as a bigger concern and maybe set off the events of what the Sith are doing to try to stop him when he's on Moraband in the rest of the arc, that I could probably buy into. As for the mistake at the end, yeah. And it's just going to be a mistake they're going to keep making. Not only are they... Uh, still using the clones despite what happened. And, oh, no, it was a parasite. Uh, it had nothing to do with that uh, uh, that bio-organic chip thing. Surely. And that whole thing before. Now they're sweeping this under the rug. And Yoda's even going to have a freaking vision of Jedi fighting clones. And just every step along the way, unless we have a, a scene that's deleted where the, the father comes in like with Anakin and flicks Yoda on the forehead and all of a sudden he forgets everything, the Jedi are getting really stupid as we get closer to Revenge of the Sith. Maybe it's not Yoda's pride, but it's the Jedi's pride in general that they feel like they can do no wrong. The only way that I could buy this as making logical sense is if what they're trying to show is, is the Jedi trying to basically keep their reputation, because there's already the protests against them and such, the power is starting to shift from the Senate to the Chancellor anyway, he's looking for control over the Jedi and such, as we're going to see in Revenge of the Sith, that maybe this was sort of a, let's not give our critics more ammunition against us and the war, this is why we got to sweep it under the rug. Um, because otherwise they should have said, uh, we got a problem, let's do something about this, even if it was just, you know, maybe more control with non-clone soldiers in the field to keep an eye on things or something, you know. Uh, but overall, the end, stronger than the beginning, would have been nice to see the backstory straight, but, but it certainly was an interesting episode for some of the right and some of the wrong reasons. You know, I agree with you guys completely about the Jedi making a lot of mistakes here. But I think what it does is it feeds into the idea that the Jedi are losing control. They say in Attack of the Clones that the dark side is starting to cloud their judgment. And what would stand to reason that as the war goes on and the dark side starts to permeate more, that they would start to make worse and worse decisions. And they are, as we'll see in the next arc, really grasping at straws and, and even amongst themselves getting extremely paranoid. And almost there's almost a, a little bit of infighting, the way that the, the council even treat Yoda, and Yoda comes with this revelation, we'll get to it in a minute, and the, the, one of the council's first reaction is, oh, well, maybe he's being influenced by the Sith. There's a lack of trust, there's a lack of cohesion, and it really kind of feeds into the idea that the Jedi are really reached the end of their rope. Yeah, you got it right. You know, the Jedi, they turn on each other like Republicans. You do one thing, bam, they'll turn on you. They'll kick you out of the order, Anakin. They turn on you quick. They go for your throat. And I'm just saying, they turn on you. We're talking about Yoda here. You know, we're not talking about a Padawan. You know, we can understand, if not condone, them turning on Ahsoka. It's a Padawan. But we're talking about the leader of the Jedi Order here. And Kiati Mundi has no quarrel with saying, hey, you know, maybe Yoda's not with his mind. You know, he's good with his body, with his mind. It's like, wow. A tumor, it does not. Now, looking at the beginning of the next episode, Voices, we find Yoda in his quarters contemplating on the information that was learned in the last episode. And 
He is contacted, as we've already alluded to, not for the first time, by Qui-Gon Jinn. Voiced again by Liam Neeson, which was kind of thrilling to see if they could get Liam in to record these things for the episodes now and for the Mortis trilogy. Can they please get him to go fix Attack of the Clones for their special edition? Because that still sounds really bad. Anyway, tangent ended. I I thought it was was kind of interesting because Yoda is questioning him and <laughs> and Qui-Gon's spirit goes, oh, yeah, you're not going to listen? Then he basically picks him up, shakes him around a little bit. All right. What are we seeing here at the beginning of this episode? Yoda is meditating. Why is he meditating? Is he thinking about the what happened at the arc before? Or, or is he thinking about something else? Why is he meditating? I took it as he's trying to think about what, you know, the revelation that happened with Sifo-Dyas and how the war is going. I mean, I think the Jedi know that something's wrong. The Jedi know that they are kind of losing their grip, losing control, making bad decisions. And, you know, when I think about it, this was even, stepping outside the Clone Wars, this was even, you know, addressed in the film. I, I recently watched Revenge of the Sith again, and there's that point where Anakin... Obi-Wan and Palpatine are trapped by Ray Shields on the invisible hand. And Obi-Wan sta- says, we're smarter than this. They're realizing that they, they, they're they slipping. They, they, their hold on things is, is giving. See, and I just saw that as Yoda's 850 years old. My 90-year-old grandma takes a lot of naps. Maybe Yoda just <laughs> needs a nap and he <laughs> meditates. What I always like about the meditation rooms, whenever you see Anakin or Yoda, is the blinds. They still have blinds. They can make a lightsaber, but they still have blinds in the future past or the past future, wherever they're supposed to tangent over. Well, I think it's a very interesting kind of dichotomy with the the Jedi. Some things are very technologically advanced in, and other things, they, they're really not. Now... I have to say that when I always think about the Jedi, I think of them as very, you know, in tune with nature as much as possible. While they have all these technological things, they have all these, I guess, they have other gadgets that they can do all these things, but they they always choose to kind of be in touch with nature. And then we get to a point where Yoda is trying to replicate his connection to Qui-Gon through the Force, and they put him in a tank of whatever that is, almost looks like a back-to-tank, and, and using external forces, try to almost shut down his vital signs till he's almost to the point of death. And I'm thinking, well, that's not very Jedi-like, but they call it a Jedi technique. Uh, the deprivation ritual. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of a cool idea. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, philosophies and religions around the world that, that think in terms of sort of the connection to the spirit world or to the afterlife or whatever um, being something that one is closest to at the point of death, uh, or at least the idea that uh, shutting out external stimuli in some form or another will do it. So in a sense, that's that's basically what we're getting here. I mean, heck, I use a similar idea when I was doing greater good to let the telepaths send themselves through time. they got to shut out all these external things. It's just kind of one of those things that's the storytelling trope of saying, you know, let's go deeper than what you can do without and to add a level of danger to the whole thing. I think it worked. I mean, how many times have we actually seen Yoda, aside from when he actually dies, close to death to the point where it's freaking them out? Even the doctor, uh, Rig Nima, is freaking out from the deprivation ritual. Although, I gotta say... Yeah, well, who is this doctor anyway? You know, who is this doctor? It, she's not a Jedi? 
and she's not a clone. I thought isn't well, she is a Jedi? Rick Neely, isn't she a Jedi doctor? Well, yeah, that's she's what a I Jedi. Wa- well, that's what I want to. Okay, then I want to ask you, Jed. What do you think about this Jedi doctor? Me think about the Jedi doctor. Like, what do you think about this Jedi doctor? As a woman, <laughs> as a woman, <laughs> she is also a woman. So no. <laughs> Well, she was fine. Woman, I feel like... What do you think the Jedi librarian? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of a, one of my aunts who's totally evil. Um, no, she. This lady was fine. She was like, she's a plot device, basically. She has to. She's she's for dropping exposition and and for kind of moving the plot along as a character. She didn't really have a whole lot, and and that's fine. There's going to be characters like that. It's kind of interesting to see that the Jedi do have their own medical facility because they've kind of referenced it. They've hinted at it a little bit, but now we've gotten to actually see it, and and that was fine. But she just she's kind of a non-entity to me. She was cool to see, though, because she was based on old Mace Windu concept art for The Phantom Menace. So it's another one of those reusing concept art to create a new character kind of things. Although, of course, that means that she doesn't dress like any other Jedi, just like half the women who are Jedi don't. That's that's the reason why I asked Jen, because Jen is an intelligent woman who uses her brains, you know, and her brawn. Not that she doesn't have sexuality, but that's not... You know, that's not as a society how we're moving on. I just that's why I asked her that as a Jedi doctor, she still has to dress like and, and that's when they show a lot of the women. We see a uh, we see a couple of the other women Jedi and they're always kind of scantily dressed. And I just I just thought Jen might find a kick out of that. Even the doctor has to paint on her clothes. Did anybody else think for maybe just a minute that she was some kind of plant who was going to try to kill Yoda for sure? I did. Because she stuck (laughs) out like nothing else, you know? It's like, she's got to be. Well, jumping back to the Yoda thing for a second, one thing I've always been curious about was when did Qui-Gon Jinn learn the technique? Uh, You know, because to me, it was always like one of those things like, you know, if he did it while he was alive, you'd have thought he'd have brought that to the Jedi at some point. Like, hey, guys, I learned this really great technique. But I mean, obviously, he was sworn in as as a secret member of this will society or whatever they're calling them. But the way that that played out was always weird to me because he tells Yoda that he's been picked to be the light. And I'm I'm immediately thinking, you know, now that now that the EU is legends and anything's open, Yoda's never come back as a Force Ghost. Like now, this is prime setup for a Force Ghost Yoda at any point because Yoda's being trained to be the light in the darkness. What's Luke missing? All that Yoda training, and now Yoda could be showing up at any point. I mean, we could find out in Episode Seven that Yoda's been showing up all this time and been training him as a Force Ghost, and I, that immediately rose to my mind as well because the the whole question of when did Jin learn this? It's not quite answered. I mean, we find out that he didn't complete his training, but we still don't know, like, when that training occurred. Did it occur while he died and they they did a quick thing, like what they did in the Legends biography books with how Anakin got taken? Because in Legends, that's how it happened was Obi-Wan was trained by Yoda and the two of them were working on it with Qui-Gon. And then when Anakin died, they were like, it's now or never Anakin. And they pulled him out of the nether world of the Force. Granted, that universe is off to its own and doing its own thing now. But I question that. I'm like, how did how did that work? And see, I always took that as just Qui-Gon had such a deeper connection to the living Force as compared to what the other Jedi did. And that was kind of established in The Phantom Menace that Qui-Gon Jinn really was centered around the living force while the other Jedi were more centered around more the unifying force. Now, of course, we've got the cosmic well, force. That's what I was going to say. That. Well. That's what I was going to say, Nathan. I'm glad you brought that up. Now, I've heard of the unifying force. I've heard of the living force. Now they brought in the cosmic force. And the way from what I understand is the, the reason why it's such a surprise to Yoda and the rest of the Jedi that 
Qui-Gon can communicate through them even though he's dead because that seems to be the factor. When you die, that's it. You go into the cosmic force. The living force, from what they explained here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the Jedi and people tap into the living force. And then once they die, they become part of the cosmic force. That's how they explained it here. So Qui-Gon figured out or learned a way from these witches to have his essence continue into the living force. And that's how he's able to communicate with the Jedi because they their force use is through the living force. And now, am I wrong on that? That's how they explained it. That's how I understood it. They explain it a couple of different ways. Uh, the, the Legends thing with the unifying force, that really hasn't been mentioned within this uh, w- within this series to any degree. It's basically, the original thought was, well, there's a living force and there's a unifying force, and the Jedi use the living force uh, to a degree, but there's also the, the unifying force that like connects everything together. And that's what they're talking about, luminous beings, it connects us all, it binds all things. And that Qui-Gon was sort of leaning towards the one that was more about, you know, the strange creatures, you know, I, we picked up another pathetic life form type of thing that Obi-Wan talks about, where he just kind of is connected more with living beings. Their description here is that the planet that we wind up on that gets no name is the birthplace, essentially, of life, possibly, or at least one of the centers of life in the universe, and also the home of the midichlorians. And that everyone is connected to the living force, and the midichlorians are what essentially allow them to, because it's the living force is created by living things. Uh, and then we're all connected together because the living force goes through the midichlorians to connect to the cosmic force that binds things, as opposed to a unifying force. And the cosmic force is essentially, you know, like when you hear the will of the force speaking through the midichlorians, supposedly, then it's the cosmic force that's doing that, because the living force is essentially already in you, um, with the idea being that then when you die, everything returns to that cosmic force, and your, your essence does. The question that I come up with, though, when it comes to not just when did Qui-Gon learn this, because they've never got into that. When did Qui-Gon learn how to do any of this is when did he learn the rest of it? Because that's another one of the things that left me slapping my forehead at the end of this arc. Because they flat out say repeatedly here, Qui-Gon can't teach him what he needs to know to retain his essence. That's why Qui-Gon's a voice and not a force ghost. Qui-Gon can't finish things because his training was incomplete. And now he's leading Yoda to the priestesses so that the priestesses can teach him the things that Qui-Gon himself couldn't because his training was incomplete. Not only is he chosen, he has to pass these tests, but they're the ones to be able to tell it because his training is incomplete, incomplete. They keep beating this dead horse. Incomplete! So what does it end up at the end of the episode? You pass the test, Qui-Gon's going to finish your training. How? At what point did he learn the rest of it? And if he knew the rest in the first place, why in the heck did he have to send you to the priestesses in the first place? Either he has the training or he doesn't. One way or another, you wind up with the beginning and the end of this part of this arc, again, internally inconsistent. Well, what if he learned it, but his body essence had already gone to the cosmic force and all he had left was his memories in the voice? But he says he doesn't. Hey, my training was incomplete. So now, I mean, I mean, maybe he can't become a force ghost, sure, but if the whole idea was go to the priestesses because I just can't teach you everything because I don't know everything... And at the end, it's, don't worry, I know everything. Does that mean that at some point during the episodes, as as Yoda's off training, the priestess is like, okay, we didn't tell you this before, but we need you to train the little green dude because we just don't have time for that now. So let's give you the crash course on the rest of all the training that you missed out on in the first place. We're sorry we didn't tell you before, but now we actually kind of need to. See, I can see that working, though, in a degree where they're like, okay, well, we need him to pass the tests before you can give him the green light. So tell him you don't know. (laughs) 
Well, here's my question. Okay, here's another question I have. These tests that Yoda has to go through, right? It's dark side Yoda. One of it's all has to do with the dark side. These tests are these tests being controlled by Sidious and Dooku? Oh are no. They, are the, no. Are these the reasons he has tests? Because they, I, I know you say no now, but at the end, the last one is. Or the last one is right. Exactly. The last one is. So was this whole thing set up by Sidious and Dooku? That's what I'm saying. No, no I don't buy that. I, I think the priestesses had things set up, but I, I, I think like what you were suggesting before. I think Dooku and Sidious, they figured out, okay, we got to take out Yoda. And at the very end test, Yoda enters a place where they were able to strike at him because they knew he, were, he was getting close. So by that logic, then they knew Yoda was on not only a mission to find out what happened with Sifo-Dyas, but he was on a mission to find out how to transcend through the Force from Qui-Gon. How would they know that? I don't think they knew that was why he was there. I think they just knew he was there and he was meddling and, and they saw it as an opening. And and I feel like back to the original question is why was he doing all this in the first place? Qui-Gon, I feel like mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, that Yoda was chosen and, and we never hear about who it is. And I don't know if it's the priestesses and they're like some sort of personification of the force's will, I guess you could say. But yeah. It really is kind of implied that someone outside or something, some force, forgive the pun, is directing Yoda to this place. And then he is just left kind of vulnerable. And that's where Sidious kind of capitalizes. Unless Sidious and Dooku were the ones directing him to this place to get him vulnerable. Well, no, but we, but we get an answer to that because we see them getting ready for the ritual that winds up attacking Yoda on Moraban slash Korriban. So we know that there's a point at which they become aware, but they it's not just, oh, well, when do they become aware? They tell us when they become aware. When Yoda's fighting that weird Sith snakey thing made up of the like little snakes that become the warriors and stuff, and he mouths off to them, and they say that they are making the Sith of this time aware of what Yoda's doing. There's a moment at which the spirits reach out to the dark side and basically knock on the mental doors of Dooku and Sidious. We even see the moment where Dooku's like, <gasps> and realizes it, and it turns out Sidious has as well because the tactical droid's there at the door saying, hey, you've been recalled to Coruscant by your master. So we know when the moment comes and they get involved. How awesome is that though? How awesome is that, that moment right there? that we don't know so much about the Force, that there's all kinds of ways that they can use the Force. How awesome is that? And it's canon. Yeah, well, speaking of canon, later in that final episode, something comes up that I was actually kind of excited to see because it it's another example of how maybe in the future, Lucasfilm will take what they want from existing expanded universe or legends and bring it in and make it mainstream canon again. They brought back Darth Bane. I was thrilled to see that. And correct me if I'm wrong, did any of you catch who did Bane's voice? Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. Yeah. Although, is it the same Bane that we saw in Legends? <laughs> it was the Bane that established the rule of two. Who it looks completely different than anything else. But hey, why not? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, what that's what like. I mean. I mean, it's like he could now, they could easily decide to do anything open with the Sith in the backstory in the new canon. So, I mean, you know, they had a model for the Legends version of Darth Bane that they could have easily used. They chose a different one, and I, I thought that was kind of telling. But bear in mind, Darth Bane was fleshed out in the EU, starting, I guess, with what, Bane of the Sith by Kevin J. Anderson, if I remember right. But he was not a character that was created 
for the EU slash Legends. George Lucas created Bane and the idea of the rule of two uh, as the backstory of the prequels. Um, he wound up giving that information in part uh, to Terry Brooks, who wrote the novelization of The Phantom Menace. So this was another instance of here's something being created by Lucas that was within part of his planning, didn't wind up actually being said by Lucas's characters on screen yet, but that was then taken by the EU and expanded upon. And there were instances where this was supposed to come up. In the Mortis trilogy, he was supposed to show up. They had a character model based on Bane in his Orbalisk armor, um, but wound up ditching that, only for him to wind up coming back here. But there were plenty of times when Bane didn't have that, particularly after uh, the events of one of the novels, if you really want to try to fit all that stuff together. Um, but to have him back here, and it doesn't mean anything from Legends happened with him, but this isn't, holy crap, he's pulling over a character from Legends like he did with Ayla Sakura. This is, hey, I created a character, and my version of the character is going to look a little bit different because, yeah, he's my character, and I didn't create that other stuff. Cool that he brought him back, and even cooler that Mark Hamill is doing the voice. But, I mean, that wasn't Legends taking hold or anything. This was a... Hey, Lucas no, I mean, I'm not meaning it like that. I'm just mean it's it's cool that there's a potential that we could get a totally different Bane than what we've ever seen in the Legends version. I mean, because he did come from Lucas in that regard, but what we've seen in the EU evolve might not be the direction they decide to go with later. I mean, I always thought it was kind of weird that that they decided to make Moraban Korriban in that regard. Like, I I have a hard time envisioning Bane wanting to bury himself with those other Sith. But it gets back to that that question, are the Sith the same Sith that we've always, you know, come to rely on? I mean, th that whole backstory is wide open to new interpretation. It's not the same. They've already said it's not the same. You must unlearn what you have learned, my friends. It's not the same. Nothing is the same. Everything right now is wide open. So my question is, like, the Bane, he was not there. This was a figment of Yoda's imagination, right? Unless the Sith have found a way to transcend the Force and manifest itself. See, I did not see that as a hallucination. I saw that as sort of a manifestation of the dark side that imbued Moraban and taking the form of different things. If it wasn't, it, because if it was a hallucination, there's no way that it could have reached out to Dooku and Sidious. Correct. This but, is, but it's but it's not Bane that reaches out. It's those Sith warrior spirits. And to but to add fuel to the idea that this may actually be the spirit of Bane in the EU and in Legends, this area is known as the Valley of the Dark Lords and has all these Sith uh, burial chambers that have the spirits of long dead Sith lords in them. And in the episode guide for this episode on StarWars.com, it tells us that this, as depicted here is the Valley of the Dark Lords. So I'm thinking that with that connection, they were probably meaning for this to actually be a spirit of Bane, or at least enough of a spirit of Bane to have his personality, um, as opposed to it entirely being a figment of Yoda's imagination. It, it, there was a Sithness to it, so to speak. Okay, well, Yoda's had a lot of, well, trippiness in this whole arc. We get the opportunity to see what is probably his first visit to Dagobah, where he goes into the exact same cave that Luke will visit 25 years later. I kind of like that he had a similar experience to Luke in that cave where he's seeing these horrible things and he's kind of freaked out and, and he doesn't really know what to do about it. He doesn't know if it's true or if it's going to be true or if he can kind of avoid that path. And it was not nearly, it was a lot much longer than what Luke endured. But I kind of like that, that, that bookend, that 
kind of the master finds it and then uses it later as a teaching tool. It was kind of neat. This is also kind of where I was still on board with the episode. And after we got past this and he started going to the planet of the midichlorians and stuff, that's where I started to really lose it. And I couldn't really keep my suspension of disbelief going. But I liked this scene. This was actually really neat. Planet of the midichlorians. I think the Mortis trilogy has really burned all of us. But this was my favorite part. When I saw the the previews of what we we're going to get in season six and it shows we knew that Yoda was going to be on Dagobah, I got goosebumps. I'm like, Yoda on Dagobah? We're going to find out why there's dark side, why, why it's filled with the dark side energy there and this and that. And it really, for me, didn't really disappoint. We show Yoda and he's jumping around and you get to see some of the native wildlife that's on Dagobah. Excuse me, Dagobah. Dagobah. We see Yoda using how he's able to get to get to know the terrain and using vines and stuff to jump around. And I could really get to to feel how Yoda could make this his home, you know, and it really just gives me goosebumps. You know, there's a lot of things they could have met. They missed with this. Like one of the things, Nathan, I wanted to ask you was this R2. I mean, R2's been to Dagobah now, right? So yeah, he should know. Apparently. He should know who Yoda is in, in Empire Strike, or excuse me, in Return of the Jedi. Right off the bat, he's already been there before. So that was a question that I had. That they're kind of contradicting the, their own movies, not just the expanded universe or the legends. That's what I'm saying. There's an easy fix to that. They just need to wipe R2's memory at some point. But the whole point was that he was the one who doesn't get his memory wiped. Um, then how do you get Dark Nest? Oh, wait, never mind. Doesn't exist. Thank goodness. But no, the, the whole thing here, I mean, yes, there's a whole issue of, well, what about R2-D2? As cool as that ship is, and it provides one of our deleted scenes, I guess, because in Germany you got to see the scene from the preview of them going up and taking off from Coruscant, but you don't in the English uh, American version. But yeah, R2-D2 is there, and there's a question of, well, why doesn't he just tell Luke when he gets there, hey, I recognize this place. It's cool to see Yoda go to the cave and have that connection again, because... Again, going back to the legend stuff, there was a time in which the story was that that was where Yoda killed a Bafashi dark Jedi, and that created the cave in the first place. And when, mm -hmm. when Lucas said, no, 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 the first time he ever goes to Dagobah is in Revenge of the Sith, bullcrap apparently because of this, that sort of erased that and just said it was some other Jedi who does it. So to now have him have a personal connection to the cave before Luke goes in is very cool. But the visions themselves are the ones that have me sitting back kind of scratching my head because we get... Let's see, we get the Jedi charging into a group of clone troopers and killing them. That should have been a red flag with what we saw last episode and what we saw back in the first arc here. We see uh, the attempt to arrest Palpatine, though we don't see Palpatine's face, the whole and everything, where uh, Saisi Tin, Kit Fisto, and Agen Kolar get killed. So maybe there should be a point at which you say, hey, um, when you go try to arrest some crazy dude, maybe you guys should not go together anymore, and we can sort of dodge that fate. Um, we see the death of Shakti at the hands of Anakin slash Vader, uh, which is something that in this continuity may come to pass, and the other one didn't come to pass because she wound up showing up again in Force Unleashed. But they're using basically a deleted concept. I don't think it's a deleted scene, but a deleted concept of one of the couple of different ways that Shakti was supposed to die in Revenge of the Sith that they wound up throwing out. We get to see Force Lightning being used against Mace. In that final battle, you know, where Anakin winds up cutting his hand off and everything. And we get the form of Darth Sidious saying, Sidious, Sidious. So again, A, the Sith don't care about their names being kept secret, it seems like. Because now the dark side is whispering the name of Sidious to him. But also, this kind of plays back into the whole, okay, now he's having a vision of what Sidious 
somewhat looks like cloaked, I guess, at that point, when he'll have another one later on. All this stuff adds up to, again, why don't you do something with this knowledge? Yes, always emotion in the future and all that kind of crap. But you're going to find that all these become true, so why the heck are you questioning visions of the future later? Whatever. But any of this, shouldn't any of this have said, do something? Is it that he is questioning, because these are visions, if there's truth to them or not? Yes, that's exactly what he's doing, because we see when he's saving Anakin, and he has that battle with Sidious, and they're asking him, why are you saving him? You know what he's going to do. Yoda does not believe that's what he's going to do. He says it, the future. So Yoda does not believe. He sees these visions, but he does not believe that that's going to happen. And I think it may have a little bit to do with maybe Yoda's a little arrogant, you know, maybe 900 years doesn't make him wise. I don't know, because maybe the trials that he's went through where he rejects the dark side so vehemently made him arrogant to where he he thinks he's not in, he thinks he's infallible because there's many times where he said the dark side has nothing to teach me. And that's that's the big weakness of, of Yoda and why the Jedi fall, because I don't think he thinks that he can make a mistake. But it's not, I'm not saying that, I mean, A, you know, yes, if he believes them now, why doesn't he do something now? But he's also the guy that's talking about how, you know, hard to see the future is and, and all that kind of stuff and not really falling for it when Luke does an Empire Strikes Back. Whereas now he's going to wind up within about a year or so or less after these events having pretty definitive proof that sometimes when you see visions, holy crap, they come true um, almost to the point of stage direction. <laughs> So, moving from Dagobah to the planet of the midichlorians, or whatever the hell we're calling it, I gotta say, I like the little golem Yoda that he had to deal with. Dan, what'd you think of uh, the little dark side, evil Yoda? I actually enjoyed that fight. That character design was pretty cool. It was, it was really interesting to see him fighting. Like you said, that's why I, I went straight to Gollum. It, it, that's what reminded me of kind of Yoda's darker side, uh, looking for his precious. But uh, I kind of like that, and you know, I, I know we're going into all these all these visions that Yoda saw. Honestly, with this whole episode and the start of the next episode, this to me was more. If Mortis had been more like this, I think I would have would have less trouble with it. It wouldn't be uh, the arc that I know I don't want to speak about ever. <laughs> I have less problems with the way the Force is handled in this arc than I did in Mortis, by far. Okay, let me ask you guys a question. How does this arc change the way you feel about the Mortis arc at all? Because there's, there is some connection. They, they even call it out in this episode. I don't hate it as much. What this arc did do for me, though, was wet my whistle for what a solo film from Yoda could be. Because now I've always thought Yoda as being kind of like the Captain America of the Star Wars universe, where he's just this Boy Scout. Now we know that Yoda has ha, does have a dark side. And we may find out in a solo movie some things that Yoda has done that may not be so Jedi-like, you know, him growing up. Which, that kind of excites me. You know, this whole arc, uh, what we may get in a in a Yoda solo film. If Yoda doesn't play with me anymore. I'm, that how was dope the craziest was part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was... We were talking about it earlier about how, you know, when Yoda makes that mistake and, and I was waiting for this scene because 
it's kind of like this was Yoda's wake up moment. Like once he saw it and then tried to dismiss it and it wasn't so easy to dismiss, he had to take that hard, long look and then accept the fact that there was darkness inside him. And I think that that was like one of those pivotal moments for the character. I really liked that part of everything. I mean, I'm conflicted when it comes to these last three. I, there's part of me that, like I said, I, I think it makes Mortis better because it wasn't as bad as Mortis. But at the same time, it, it also just throws things off in a way where I'm like, wait, I, I think I almost understand. I'm, I might be opposite of Dan on this, where I have more ways of looking at Mortis and kind of making it make sense than this one. But then again, that's because it, it this strides the two continuities. And so I have a hard time letting go a lot of the other stuff because I'm like, well, it still applies to a degree you know, to kind of moving forward. But that whole primeval part where you've got the Gollum mask part and he's looking at it and he just sees that okay yeah i've got darkness i thought that was profound for the character see i think it would have been gone great if it was something other than hubris if this was just his dark side then fine we all have a dark side within us he must come to grips with it. but instead they played off as this is hubris your your great sin your great dark side is freaking pride yoda throughout this series even going back to stuff like ambush you know, where he's not willing to basically take his judgment over others. He lets the clones kind of take the lead in a sense. This is not a character that we usually would say is synonymous with pride or hubris. In fact, if anything, probably the opposite. So this must have been an instance where they're meaning for us to think that he had pride in the past and overcame it, but it's still within him. Hence him denying it, and now he has to face it again and recognize that it will always be a part of him. Surely it's not him dealing with pride in the present, because... In a lot of ways, that doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. As for how this fits with the Mortis trilogy, I think with the Mortis trilogy's last episode changing the rules on the first two and the way this arc is going, I think that the one thing it does prove is that Christian Taylor should never be allowed to write forced backstory ever again. You know, Nathan, that's funny. Nathan, I gotta, you know, I knew there was going to be a point where I was going to disagree with you, but I think that the dark side for Yoda of being pride fits exactly what we know about him. Yoda was a jerk in Empire Strikes Back. You know, everything he said that came out of his mouth was boasting himself up. I did this. I taught Jedi for this many. When 900 years old, you get look as good. You will not. He was a jerk. He was very prideful. But now Empire Strikes Back. Dude, He had snakes and frogs to talk to for 50 years. It's in him. I'm just saying it's in him. And this reinforces that the pride is in him and maybe he's getting a little loopy when return of the jedi comes around but uh, i think this reinforces what we already know of him from return of the jedi or excuse me from empire strikes back i always perceived yoda as kind of the the prideful i'm i know better than everyone even looking back at phantom menace he he doesn't. He he makes a point of not agreeing with the council when they allow Anakin to train. That that they give Anakin over to Obi Wan as a Padawan. He he disagrees with it, and you know he's he's actually I always perceived it as a little pissed off that the council isn't just taking his decisions, which kind of brings something up that this arc kind of made me think about. What is Yoda's role? In the Jedi Council, I always kind of took him as the Grand Master, but I don't necessarily think that anymore. That is what he is, isn't it? Isn't the he's the Grand Master and Mace is is essentially directly underneath him? Well, I'm not legend wise. Sh- well, yeah, okay, exactly, legend wise, but I don't necessarily think that because he is making a decision. I mean, what do they do? Jumping all the way back to the Voices episode, they put him in the infirmary and they post those Jedi guards on him. 
he's under house arrest because they think he's gone over around the bend. But even <laughs> I mean, even if he is the Grand Master, I mean, this isn't at least as far as we know. I mean, this isn't essentially a monarchy as in terms of the hierarchy of the of the Jedi. The Jedi Council essentially runs the order. I mean, this would be sort of like you know, you might say he's sort of a president surrounded by his cabinet. Uh, or something along those lines, but even even less authority than, say, a president would. He doesn't have supreme authority. Instead, he is essentially highest among quasi-equals. They listen to him in his experience. If it's something that requires sort of that last vote, it may be him, but one person's voice isn't going to override the other 11 just because he's the Grand Master. It never seemed to be that kind of relationship we were getting there. I mean, he's not Palpatine in that sense. If Palpatine were there, that's what he'd be doing. I looked at that and saw, you know, almost fear from the rest of the Jedi Council. You've got this 850-year-old Jedi who's, you know, about the most powerful thing that they've ever seen. And he's got, you know, the equivalent of Star Wars Alzheimer's, maybe (laughs) going Sith. Who's to say that he's not just going to wake up in the middle of the night and go bonkers and take them all? So what they did, I mean... That's that's wanting to lock Grandpa up, but not want Grandpa to know you're locking him up. <laughs> they they learn their lesson, you know. They want to nip that stuff in the bud. If you're going bad, you know, they want to nip that in the bud. But this is my favorite part of that episode. It might it might be my favorite part of the arc where Yoda calls Anakin in, and Yoda has made a plan to escape. And I love his reasoning, the reason why he calls Anakin. Anakin, you know, he's just like oblivious. And Yoda says, you know what? You're going to get blamed for this. You know, I'm worried about you. You know, the reason I I chose you is because you you like the spontaneity and things. You know, Yoda calls lying spontaneity. I think I love that. I love the Yodaism in that. But he takes Anakin. He knows that he needs a distraction to get out. And Yoda uses him. Again, pointing that Yoda knows that Anakin is not this perfect Jedi. He never was going to be a perfect Jedi. Like you say, Jonathan, uh, he never wanted to be trained. But he knows he's useful and he's going to try to make the best of it. I just I just love that that scene, how he uses Anakin as a friend. To get him out of there. I love that line when he asks Anakin, are we friends? And I wanted Anakin to go, hell no, dude. You wanted to leave me on Tatooine. (laughs) (laughs) I can build a question real quick. I don't want to get us too far afield. But something that came up, um, I can't can't remember if it was Chris Walker or Andrew Gilbertson. These guys who have been longtime listeners to Beyond the Films and to RFRN. The issue came up. Dan mentioned the whole thing of fear. And there's a point when he's de- when Yoda's dealing with the priestesses that they seem to imply that the essence of the origin of all things evil and dark side is fear. That it's not some external source or a higher power or anything like that or a, a will of the dark side to go with the will of the force in general or anything like that, but that it's fear. And granted, we know the whole fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering, and somewhere in there those lollipops and all. But... The idea that the basis of the dark side and the basis of evil is fear. I don't know. That feels odd to me. It'd be interesting if that's what Lucas was trying to put into the idea of the Star Wars mythos, that essentially dark side is fear, not just that fear feeds into it. Um, I was curious what you all's take was on that, if that was something that resonated with you when you heard it. I kind of like it because if you think it's kind of like the the road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of mentality where if you're concerned about something, you're worrying about something, you're afraid of something, you're probably going to do your best to avoid it or to make things better. And then you kind of 
get stuck down this path and, and ultimately get corrupted by whatever power you end up gathering. So I kind of, I was okay with it. Yeah, but that doesn't contradict what we already know from the famous fear leads to hate, hate leads to anger and all that other stuff. I mean, it starts off with fear. And so I, I think that just kind of reinforced what we've already know, right? What I understand is, are these witches called the Wills? I'd like to think so, but no, yeah. they're just priestesses. Uh, there, yeah, there was a point where they had said that one of the ways that, that Qui-Gon learned this was from the Wills, uh, and that was something Lucas was was pushing. He said it wound up not becoming part of the final episode three. So at this point, they are simply anger, joy, confusion, sadness, and serenity, the five priestesses. Otherwise known as the Midichlorian Thespian Company. Pretty much. So, so basically what, what you would all agree is it seems like what Lucas and Filoni and them and Christian Taylor were kind of pushing here was the idea essentially that almost like there isn't a force of good, a force of evil out there, no pun intended, so much as it's not that like the dark side is itself corrupting so much as we kind of choose to corrupt ourselves in that sense. Like you don't like it's not beware the dark side because the dark side is always trying to corrupt you so much as it's beware the dark side because it's easy to fall into that corruption yourself based on your choices. Certainly seems to fit Anakin's tale. I just found it an interesting take on it where it sort of negates the idea of either side of the force having sort of a higher power sense to it, especially after they've delved so much into things like Mortis and this and so forth. Before we end this episode, I want to discuss the final well, I guess the final battle where Yoda has this vision of Anakin, Yoda, and a very small company of clones assaulting the works on Coruscant to try to take Dooku and Sidious. This was kind of a, an interesting premonition of sorts. I thought it was a battle worth, well, worthy of, you know, some of the cinematic battles that we saw. I I th I thought that in itself that was a really high point of this arc. What did you guys think, Mark? I I like the way that they played into what Dooku and Sidious were doing. I mean, Dooku had just got called back to Coruscant so they could set up their spell, and I, I mean, I don't know exactly how they knew Yoda was going to be there and they were able to you know draw through the dark side or whatever beyond using Dooku's connection. But the way that they factored that in to what he was doing was was brilliant. I mean, Dooku was there and he was at the works, and then Anakin's telling him like, "We've reached the signal. He's in the works. We think he's with his master." And Yoda happens to be there. I I love the way that that played out, and Yoda was kind of like, "What's going on? It's your mission, master." I I. I don't know for me that was a really cool moment and going up to everything and, and the fight that happened there and at the end when they're doing the fall and, and yoda's trying to look inside you know there's part of me that's like man you're that close how can you not see up inside that cowl you know but the way that when he finally lifts it open and there's nothing there and he's plunging down like i was like what's gonna happen next and then he comes to and, and he's like did i die like sort of you're like wait what i Again, that's the Mortis side of this, where I just, there was too many questions, and the more I watch it, the more questions I have, less answers. Well, and I'm of the mind on these sort of things, you know, in Star Wars, that I think sometimes giving us too many clear-cut answers actually diminishes the mystique of the of the story or of the character. That For me, the, the perfect example is Boba Fett. He was a much cooler character before we knew he was a whiny clone. But, Jen, what, what did you think of, of how they dealt with this sort of culmination of the arc? This was where this arc lost me. And, and I kind of just sat there and was following along, sort of. But, like, 
none of it really made sense to me anymore. Like I understood what was happening, but like as far as like why it was happening and 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 what Yoda was doing, and it, it was just it felt like this crazy LSD thing. Or it was just bizarre, and I didn't really understand like why Sidious would be trying to do this. Like it didn't entirely make sense. This weird like psychic attack thing, and I couldn't tell if it was really happening or if it wasn't, and it just lost me. And and after it, the the episode ended, kind of just sat there, really kind of processing what I had just seen, and like it threw me too far. Like I couldn't keep up my suspension of disbelief. I couldn't keep straight really what was happening. I kept pulling all the similar to Mark, just all these questions. It's like, can't you can you not tell who this guy is? His voice is really similar. Like I had a hard time with this part. Well, oh come on, he couldn't have told told who it is by his voice. I mean, they, they changed that. It, it's now um, Tim Curry. <laughs> It's Dr. Frankenberger. That should have tipped him off right there. He's a sweet sophistite. Dan, they, they say in, actually, when it doesn't work, Sidious tells Dooku, we failed to break Yoda. What do you think they meant by that? What, what we, how are they trying to break him? I think they put their card on the wrong Jedi, uh, deceiving him by the wrong Jedi. I really thought that they, they thought the Sifo-Dyas illusion was going to be in you know, a pusher. I I guess they thought maybe Yoda and Sifo-Dyas were a little bit tighter and that that was going to be their gateway. And that would have led to this whole Anakin illusion thing. But that didn't end up working. And Yoda ended up being a lot stronger than they thought. And he was willing to sacrifice himself even when he saw Anakin, you know, behead Dooku and did not approve at all. He still saved him, and he still sacrificed himself because of what Sidious could possibly do. I don't know what exactly they had hoped to accomplish, what in that dream sequence Yoda would have done differently that would have broken him. It really seemed like a logical route, but that may just because, you know, we know Yoda better than Sidious does, obviously. Wow, you know that that was one that never even dawned on me. I mean, that just blew my mind. I mean, what what would have happened if they just struck Yoda down in the lightsaber duel that was going on in his mind? Would he have been in a force coma or something like that? I mean, what was their goal? I that never even struck me. I mean, aside from they wanted to mess with Yoda and strike out at him, but how that was going to physically affect Yoda or mentally, and which was the angle they were going for, never even thought of. You know, this last dream, this last dream or whatever it was is the reason why I formed a hypothesis that Sidious and Dooku were behind this whole thing anyway. What happens at the end when Yoda wakes up and the priestess is there? Is this another test? Was Did he pass a test? Was he supposed to try to get corrupted by two Sith Lords to pass a test? Because she's there when he wakes up and she says, you know, now you have to go to Qui-Gon and he's going to continue training. So was this a test? Was the priestesses a part of... The whole plan with Dooku and Sidious to try to break Yoda? i uh, That's where I didn't understand it. You know, maybe you guys can help me with that. Because all of a sudden he wakes up and the priestess is there. And this was supposed to be a whole thing. It's a whole Sidious-Dooku plot. But now well, they were there before and after he went into that last chamber and they flat out that was when they told him everything you've, you've experienced up to now has been us. But once you step through there, we can't help you anymore. I mean, I mean, I almost got the impression that they knew the attack was coming. Right. Almost exactly. in that that 
the aspect of they were part of that cosmic force. So they would have, you know, kind of been able to be like the Q from Star Trek, being able to see from all ends of the timeline. Like a part of me kind of wondered if they knew that was coming and were just kind of setting him up to see whether or not he'd pass that test. But they, uh, to me, I felt like they definitely let him go in there and do it on his own. Kind of like the Luke and Yoda on Dagobah. But what if Sidious and Dooku weren't planning on attacking Yoda? What was going to be his last final test? Were they just going to send him back to Qui-Gon? See, that's where it gets a little people scratching their heads. You know, they it's almost like they try to rush it. And why rush through something that they didn't know if they were going to release it or not anyway? I, I don't know. Well, Barrett, this kind of goes back to something Qui-Gon said earlier. Yoda at one point asked Qui-Gon, do you know how things are going to happen or, how, you know, how this is going to end? And Qui-Gon says that, the, you know, where he is, there is no past, there is no future. Uh, you know, everything is as as it is. And I think they knew that this was kind of the next logical step that Yoda needed to take. It's it's kind of like in Empire Strikes Back when Luke chooses to leave Dagobah to go save his friends. And, you know, he's told that he has to do that alone, that they can't, that Yoda and Obi-Wan can't interfere. I think this was Yoda's moment in the same way. Except that Luke wouldn't have died in the cave on Dagobah, whereas Yoda would have presumably died if Sidious and Dooku had their way. It's the same BS they played on Ahsoka, right? At the end of the show, uh, uh, actually, what you just went through, it was your uh, Jedi Trials. Uh, yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> right. It's that thing again. All right, Jonathan, uh, permission for my last RFRN mini rant ever? Granted. You asked the question about just in general the thoughts on the battle itself. I found it extremely unsatisfying simply because of the fact that you knew there wasn't a whole lot to it. Certainly nothing was going to happen to Yoda. Uh, Yoda wasn't going to give up on Anakin, and it was all a dream sequence basically anyway. I mean, how many times does he need to face some kind of spiritual thing uh, in terms of visions that's not actually going to kill him. On a side note here, and something I haven't mentioned so far, I want to make sure at least it got mentioned, this is all taking place on Moraband. The Sith homeworld, known as Korriban, has existed within the EU for years, and Lucas basically has said, no, we're going to call it Moraband, and they've turned around in the episode guide and said, well, it's the same planet, just know my different names over the years. Who knows if it'll stick with that, with the whole new canon versus legends thing. Probably just be called Moraband from here on out. But this is one of those instances of Lucas doing like he did with, with Quinlan Boss. We're going to take somebody and completely change it and say, see, you should be happy that I kind of sort of used your favorite thing, even though I just peed all over it when I did it. Lucas, I don't think you ever, you in your grand vision, you never called it Moraban. You heard Koraban, thought it sounded cool, but wanted your own spin on it, so decided to change it. Maybe you should be the one fighting a Gollum version of yourself, because you're the one with the hubris. Coming back. I do agree with those who argue, you know, what was the Sith's game plan here? I mean, not only just what was the priestess's game plan, because they're probably just pulling the same BS they pulled on Ahsoka, but what was the Sith's game plan? If they're trying to break him and not kill him, they're really revealing a lot to make this happen. They're taking a gamble, because he's seeing where they are in the works, in the vision. They're breaking into the exact same building, exact same place, where Sidious and Dooku are doing their ritual. At this point, he should he should go back to R2-D2, get into space, send a transmission and say, Hey, Jedi Council, check out this freaking building, even if they're already gone to get some clues about the Sith Lords. Again, he doesn't apparently bother. But they're giving away that. Sidious is there. He's hearing Sidious's voice. And as they're fighting, 
it doesn't make any sense why he isn't able to see underneath the cloak, but even if he can't see under the hood, he's at least seeing the chin and such. He knows now that Sidious, the Sith Lord, is an old white dude who apparently has influence over the Senate somehow. Start checking the white dudes who have any kind of influence over the Senate and wonder what they would sound like if they had a cold. So yeah, there's that question of, you know, not only why doesn't he see him under the cloak, but why not pursue this a bit more? But they don't. This is another one of these instances where you have this thrilling moment, but when you step back and view it from a more critical angle, it's sort of a, yeah, but what really did it do for us? It raised some more questions, and it made us shake our heads at some things that don't get done otherwise, and missed opportunities. This time, not necessarily in terms of where they could have gone creatively, but missed opportunities in terms of the characters and what they do afterwards. And I think that very well sums up what, it, what this whole arc feels like. Of all the things that Yoda learns in these four episodes, where's it wind up going? The one thing this does manage to do, I think, is finally solidify, at least in the new canon, something that they've always had to kind of work around in Legends, which is that in this sequence, because of the connection of Dooku to Yoda, they reference again, you can connect the two because there's that strong master-Padawan bond. They say it earlier, but we all trained under Yoda. Yeah, but something makes Dooku special and when he has that brief vision earlier of this positive future where there was no war, Dooku is recounting a mission they took when they fought Terendatex on Kashyyyk, which Yoda seems to remember. And unless him remembering is part of the vision too, that mission actually happened at some point. So I would make the argument that Thame Cerulean, you are gone. Lucas's original intent is back. It was Yoda trains Dooku, Dooku trains Qui-Gon, Qui-Gon trains Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan trains Anakin. That there is no, oh, well, Dooku just trained as a child. If anything, it cleared up that from Lucas's perspective, I guess. But, man, it just feels like such a grand sequence for a final episode of the series that just has so many holes in it that it's sinking the entire time. And I think that's going to be my last question to you guys. Was this the way to end the series? When looking at this as the intended way to complete the series... Was this a worthy way to, to close it out? And I'm going to say that I far prefer the Ahsoka ending that we got at the end of Season 5 to this. Jen, what about you? I am definitely with you. I like the bookend kind of Ahsoka ending. I feel like it's a nice way to close the show out. This, especially the last episode in this arc, for me was a real dud. Like, I was not thrilled just kind of had this ugh feeling when the episode closed it's just kind of like that's the end huh so if we had to end with something in this particular arc i think the last one would be better but i i really like the ahsoka ending best barrent well i mentioned before that the ahsoka ending is always going to be my official ending but this ending brings up a lot of questions okay in the ahsoka ending you had the jedi failure so you end the series with a Jedi failure. And this ending, you have the Sith who fail. So depending on what side you're on, you might like this ending better. Because this ending, you have Dooku and Sidious running with their tail between their legs. They have to admit failure. And one thing that I find interesting is that when Sidious fails, he doesn't kill himself. You know, when he says to Dooku, you know the price of failure. You know, when he's force choking him, when he fails, obviously, nothing happens to him. But anyway... The way of the world. He who has the gold makes the rules, right? The golden rule. But in this ending, the Sith fail. In the Ahsoka ending, the Jedi fail, which is more indicative of how the saga is going to play itself out. 
So it depends on what you like better. Me, I like the Ahsoka. Dan? While I liked this arc because I felt it it, uh, touched on some things that I was interested in and it showed us uh, some things that I've been wanting to see, like Bane, even though Devin Form and Korriban, I will never call it Moriban. I still feel that if these lost missions had never surfaced, if we had ended the Clone Wars series with Ahsoka walking away, that would have been a perfect end. There was really no need to go any further, except for Filoni had some things in his head that he wanted to get out. So even though I did like these episodes more than a, a few others did, still Ahsoka's ending is it for me. Nathan. I'm going to have to agree. Ahsoka's ending probably wouldn't have been the best ending to the series. I like that we got more. It would have been nice maybe if they were just slotted in at some earlier point. So the last we saw really was Ahsoka walking away. Instead, we get Yoda basically declaring that, yeah, we're probably going to lose the Clone Wars, but noting the fact that there may be a future victory. And that makes sense in light of uh, Luke and the future we're going to see in the classic trilogy. But I'm telling you, it wound up basically going downhill. We got the Strong Order 66 arc, the Clovis arc, the Jar Jar stuff, and then we wind up here, and it just happened to be the last arc that's the one that has all the issues. I mean, I'll leave you with the thought that if, as these episodes are ending, the last thing that Yoda learns is there is another Skywalker, why isn't the first place he goes when he gets back to Coruscant? to Padme's space OBGYN to find out if that's true. We're looking for another Skywalker in general. Mark, what did you think about this ending versus the Ahsoka ending? You know, the Ahsoka ending was beautiful. It was poignant. It, it was a great end. Uh, this one, you know, it, it's it's rough to say a better way to have done it. Uh, but I, I almost feel like they should have moved everything that happened in the last three episodes of this arc ahead of the first episode and maybe they left the the lost ones as the last episode or even maybe move the clones uh, arc to that position because this one did it, it left me more confused whereas the Ahsoka one while there were questions and stuff that were left unanswered as you know what was her fate Rex and so forth it, it felt more like a closure this one didn't feel like it closed anything at all it just felt like here was a smorgasbord of goodie of goodies that were just left out for us to kind of nibble on you know if they'd have slid them into season five i that might have worked but we already feel like some of this stuff was kind of rushed so i don't know if that would have been a suitable answer so i i definitely i gotta lean on that side that the ahsoka arc was definitely the better two to wrap the show with but at the same time the lost ones i felt that that was an integral story that needed to be told as was the the uh order 66 arc so yeah i i recognize the need for those stories and i'm i'm definitely hoping that you know the uh, lost sons of dathomir kind of gives us a dooku versus mall there that that might be pretty interesting and cool to see too well guys i want to thank you for discussing this final arc to the clone wars and participating in what is the final show for republic forces radio network it's been a very long interesting ride but as you know we aren't done yet We're having so much fun that we're moving over. But before we discuss where you can find us next, we have another old friend joining us. Jerry, welcome. Hey, guys. Great to be here. How was was the last show? You don't want to know, man. You really don't want to (laughs) know. I guess I'll find out soon enough. But before we talk about where, you know, where we're all going, we wanted to take this opportunity again to say thank you to the fans. 
you are the ones who really keep us going, whether it be your emails or your voicemails or your texts via Facebook or any other way that you've gotten hold of us. There have been times where we've we've had little discussions, some of us going, why, why are we doing this again? You know, especially when we're talking about things like the Mortis Arc or possibly Sunny Day in the Void. Those are long, very dark nights. But you, the fans, really make it worth it. And I think we all wanted to take the opportunity to thank you for everything that you did to contribute to Republic Forces Radio Network. Yeah, Jonathan, and also, I mean, one of the reasons I want to just jump in on this final episode being the actual final episode, assuming, you know, Dave Filoni doesn't pull out a few more lost episodes along the way, which I, which I doubt. But, yeah, I mean, you know, working with you guys has been great. I want to, you know, personally thank all of you guys myself because just, you know, the, the work that, um, you know, that many of us who's in this call today have, have done hosting the show throughout the years. You guys have been a great crew to work with. Um, one of also just thank all the people who were you know part of our live shows back in seasons one and two. I mean, there's a lot of people who contributed early on the show who's not obviously here with us today. I want to thank every one of you. Can't mention you all by name. There's just so many of you. Um, but it's been a great ride. And just even when we had the dark episodes of the dark arcs of, you know, like you said, not dark side, but just the ones that have been less fun to talk about. It was always a blast getting together with you guys, people I consider uh, true friends. And no matter how good or bad the episode was, it was great just to come together as this group and talk Star Wars. How about some of the things that we've been through while we're recording? We have been through a lot here, um, and I do consider everybody friends, Jerry. You know, we all have different views. We all run different lives, lead different lives. But what brings us all together is the love we have for Star Wars. And that that says a lot. You know, that means a lot to uh, to me and, I, and to all of us, I think. I'm not trying to speak for all of us, but uh, Jerry, I concur with you. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, I started dealing with Clone Wars stuff actually away from here. It was when I... My Chrono Radio was over with, and I was dealing with it bits and pieces on my But Learniverse podcast. It was usually just quick little review things that I was doing by myself. And my interest was there. The passion for just Star Wars in general was there, but it just didn't feel right, you know? I had not been part of shows that involved more people than just one or two people on at a time, really, except for a couple of spots when I had been on Digital Llama Radio way, way back in the day. It was kind of a new thing for me to be able to come in on Republic Forces back. It was around the time that the live shows were still going and sort of the just kind of raise a hand, let us know if you want to be involved kind of thing was going on. That was fun to be able to become a part of this group on a regular basis was terrific. I mean, I've said before and I'll say it again here. I think my my favorite time and the most fun time I've ever had in all of my podcasting has been living through things right now to be a part of this with the Republic Forces Radio Network team and that audience and being a part of Star Wars Beyond the Films with Mark and that audience. Seeing these things soon coming together is extremely exciting, I think. Um, and I'm hoping that a lot of folks will want to carry over into that because this has been a great run and, and a lot of great memories. But as much as we're sort of saying goodbye, I don't want to necessarily be a goodbye for everyone. Hopefully folks will come with us. But on a more personal note here, there's one of us who's, who won't be, um, and that's Jerry. 
And I wanted to take a second just to say to Jerry, I mean, because he was really sort of the leading man in a lot of ways as I was coming aboard the show, kind of kind of pointing out, you know, how things are going to work and that sort of thing, really kind of guiding this ship of fools sometimes in a way. And I don't think without his guidance that we would have quite survived as long as we have uh, when Arnie decided to step back from the show. Jerry really was, of all the voices of this show, uh, I think Arnie got it right. It's it's Jerry, Dan, and Jonathan have really been the core of all of this, and to see Jerry go is is a, a sad thing. So, Jerry, thank you um, for being our leader for so long and, and joining us so often since then. Uh, it's always been a contribution to be valued on the show. Nathan, hey, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, this has uh, certainly been my fondest uh, moments uh, in podcasting, and uh, you know that's not done a lot of podcasting compared to a lot of people. But this is uh, probably my heaviest contributions uh, um, on on the waves there, and uh, yeah, I appreciate the the kind words. Obviously, Arnie handed over a really strong show, and all the contributions everybody made just kept it going. Dan obviously uh, took over for me and ran for a while. And I think some of my fondest memories come from when he hosted the uh, Clone Wars uh, Tartakovsky series. And of course, Jonathan stepped in and has taken us into Rebels. And um, even though I'm not going to continue on in, into Rebels, um, you know, on a regular basis for certain, one thing I will say, I, I, I will for sure will be your guys' number one fan. I'm already subscribed, listen to your interviews, your data bursts, and I'm looking forward to everything you guys have to bring to us uh, regarding Rebels. And, and I hope Rebels is fantastic. Uh, I, I don't have the highest confidence in Dave Filoni, to be perfectly honest with you, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt to see what he does in a non-George Lucas run Star Wars universe. It'll be great to see it. And I think certainly because of Republic Forces uh, folks uh, like myself with with you, Nathan, and of course with Jen, uh, you know, probably really only know you guys as well as I do because of Republic Forces Radio Network. And, you know, Jonathan, I think that's that's pretty true, too, even though you and I have had opportunities to um, you know, hang out at celebrations and things like that. Dan lives down the road from me. So, I mean, come on, I, I, you know, whatever. <laughs> Dan's Dan. Um, I'm sorry. Is he, still, is he still on the phone? I'm sorry. So, um, but no, I appreciate uh, everything uh, working with you guys, and it's been fantastic. And I hope Rebels is, you know, 10 times the series that RFRN was. I can only just kind of echo what everybody else has been saying. This has been such a really great experience, and and I'm so glad that we're continuing. And and Jerry, we will miss you, but it's been so much fun having you on the show with us, and, and hopefully you will be able to continue to at least listen when we go forward. How could we end things without the man who started it all? Everybody, please give a big, warm welcome to Arnie. Hello, everyone. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure listening to you for this episode and so many episodes before. I want to just thank all of you for the hours that you've put in. Jonathan mentioned the hours editing. Oh, do I know those hours, Jonathan? Do I indeed? And when I started Republic Forces way back when the Clone Wars was new... And we just had a totally different format. And this show has completely evolved. And I owe so much to the showrunners who took it over when my time became such that I couldn't. Jerry, first of all, who did it for quite some time. And then Dan. And then finally Jonathan, who was the newest member of the crew and stepped up admirably and learned so much about posting the shows and editing the shows and learned what it was like to get editing notes back from me. And also to Barrett, Jen, Nathan, 
for being such great, reliable, consistent co-hosts of the show and everyone always bringing as positive an attitude as possible to the show, but remaining true and honest. And that's the one thing when I look back at six years of Republic Forces Radio Network that I'm most proud of is it was fandom with honesty. It wasn't blind fandom. It wasn't apologists. It wasn't kissing anyone's ass. It was, we love Star Wars, we love Clone Wars, and here's what we think about it. And it's always been fun to listen, even when I haven't been a part. And I've many, many times enjoyed hearing you guys discuss the shows more than I've enjoyed watching the shows. So thank you all for your time, your dedication. I will miss working with several of you, but know for certain that I won't be gone because I will be listening to you as you discuss Rebels in the future. You know, Arnie, I have to say that when I got way back in the day, years ago, when I got that email from you uh, and you said, why don't you come on the show, you know, kind of be a guest host for it, see how you do. Uh, And then the email afterwards, I talked to you and you said, you know, you passed the test. Why don't you become a host? It was one of the best things, Arnie, besides working and being your the podcast enhancer. But it really was. It really hit home. You know, it, it t- there's not a lot of things that people do for you that really touch you. But it, you doing that and bringing me a part of this team and for me to work with all the rest of you guys uh, really was a big part of, of, of my life for a long time. And to be able to continue that and learn so much from you, Arnie, it it's really means a lot, man. And I just want to say thanks, man. You know, over the years, this really mean a lot to me. Well, thank you for all the time you've brought into it and all of the viewpoints yours of all of them seem to be the most unique and therefore the most cherished thank you arnie i want to second that it's been a real pleasure to be able to work with you when you asked me to become part of republic forces it was just a thrill and then the i guess the the trust that you put in me to kind of pick up the torch and sort of run it to the finish line finishing up clone wars i i I can't tell you how much i appreciate it and I, again, it's it's just been a pleasure. Well, I'm going to get on this too. I'll right there with Jonathan. It has been awesome to be entrusted with the show uh, after Jerry's time became a little too tight as well. And that seems to have been the case with all of us. Uh, time just started to get away from us. And sadly, we had to turn the reins over to someone. But each time, someone great stepped in and the show has just continued to grow. And Arnie, we owe it to you for kicking it all off and bring us in and allow us to be part of your podcasting family. Well, I thank you all for the kind words. Sincerely. I do want to let the listeners know though, that what Republic forces has become, I'm really proud of, but I had such a small, small part of it. Yes. Years ago, I started it off and I edited and I hosted, but really it really is the true product of Jerry's, then Dan's, and finally Jonathan's passion and commitment and love. And it shows through in every episode the dedication each of you have brought. So thank you all for the nice words. And yeah, I chose you guys and, you know, to go to Indiana Jones, I chose wisely because you guys have grown beyond my wildest dreams. And I look forward to seeing you in the next phase grow even more. 
But guys, I really, from the heart, thank you all. Jen, I didn't single you out so much, but thank you so much. It's been so fun every time I've been on talking with you and every time that I hear you on the show. Thank you for bringing your viewpoint. And I know that things got busy for you as well. And thanks for sticking in there. And <laughs> Thanks for letting me on the show. And Nathan, you know, sometimes I tend, I think, to, you're you're on so many podcasts. Sometimes I forget just how great a gift it is that you chose to dedicate your Clone Wars knowledge to Republic forces. And so thank you for that as well. You know, you're the singular most well-read Star Wars fan I know, and you carry that knowledge with you. You don't, you barely need the timeline. You usually just know it. And thank you so much for that and your humor and your insight. So thank you. And as we close out Republic Forces Radio Network, I need to really thank all my fellow co-hosts for really kind of making me feel welcome in this role. I remember when I got the call from Arnie to, you know, to ask if I wanted to participate. It was very much a last minute thing. Something came up and somebody couldn't be part of it. And he, he called me, I think, like less than 24 hours before the recording needed to commence. And he goes, is this something you want to do? And I said, and I was shocked, but I said, yeah, I'd love to try it. And as we heard you, you go through the, uh, you go through the screening process, you get the feedback from Arnie. And if, uh, he thinks you have potential, you get to move on. And then over, you know, between seasons four and five, he, he calls me up and wants to talk about the future of the show and tells me he'd really like to see me kind of take over hosting ability. And I was, I was, I was terrified. I mean, I'm like, oh my God, how can I do this? And, you know, working with you guys made it all just so much easier because it really wasn't like doing a show. It's like sitting down with your friends and talking Star Wars, which I could really do any day of the week. So being part of this was great. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to be moving into Rebels Roundtable with everyone. And Mark, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to join us in our farewell episode to RFRN and, you know, going to be walking with us into the light as Rebels Roundtable. So why don't we talk a little bit about what's coming next? And Nathan, I know you have more than a few things to say about that. <laughs> sure thing. Well, uh, everything is kind of off the ground finally at this point, folks. I know we announced... I mean, everything was being set up well before we got to the point of finally announcing, but it took us a while to get that uh, Clone Wars movie episode all wrapped up and recorded and everything. But as of November, you've probably already had the chance to swing by, hopefully, the Facebook page for the new show, the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable. You can find the social media side of things on Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable. You can also find us on Twitter at Rebels Round. Those have been active since about November or so. Uh, rebelsroundtable.com will lead you to our chunk of the Star Wars Report website. StarWarsReport.com is a website run by Riley and Bethany Blanton, and uh, they were behind the Bothan Report at one point. Then it became uh, the Star Wars Report. Uh, Mark is part of the mix as well on that show, and that podcasting network has grown. Uh, that is the podcasting network where Mark and I also host Star Wars Beyond the Films, which is still continuing. We're not merging, per se, just the teams, in a sense, are. Uh, but now, as we've been going through these Clone Wars sort of epilogue episodes for RFRN, they've also been simultaneously released through a new feed for that new show. Again, Star Wars Reports, Rebels Roundtable. So in that case, you're actually getting more of us than you otherwise were. So if you haven't been checking out that feed, you really should. Uh, as Jerry mentioned, we now have miniature episodes 
that have brief little interviews, sort of a getting to know us series of episodes uh, for all six of your regular Rebels Roundtable team members, which, oddly enough, uh, were the six team members you heard throughout the majority of this episode of RFRN here. These episodes are being released sort of as a Rebels Roundtable prelude in that feed, so nobody's missed any of these, but aside from those little interviews, six of them, you've also got two Data Burst episodes also exclusive to that feed. One is Barrett's take on the Rebels panel at WonderCon 2014, and the second is Mark and I taking sort of a Star Wars Beyond the Films approach to the specific issue of how the recent canon announcement specifically will influence Clone Wars and Rebels, leaving out a lot of the other issues that that whole canon announcement dealt with. Uh, and that is where you'll also be able to get uh, future episodes as we move into talking about Rebels. Uh, if you're trying to listen through this feed, this is the last episode. You need to make the jump. So if you don't plan on going to rebelsroundtable.com and just downloading the episodes directly, you can find us on iTunes. Just do a search for Rebels Roundtable. Now you're going to find another show that announced a little while later with a similar name. Won't go into that whole thing. Um, but just bear in mind, it is the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable that you want to subscribe to. At the moment, our image is uh, black with orange text. Very easy to spot. And Star Wars Report is there in the name with it. But search for Rebels Roundtable. You'll find the thing very easily. In fact, as you're listening to them, you might even try to post a review while you're there. If you don't use iTunes, it's a very easy one to get to. But again, you're going to need to make sure you use the right address. In this case, it matches our Twitter, Rebels Round. It is feeds.feedburner.com slash Rebels Round. You do the whole name, you'll wind up with that other podcast out there. But we've already got things going. We've been building up through the social media stuff for a while now. It's going to be this core group. I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it, especially as we finally do get into Rebels starting to air. But we're already putting out bits and pieces as we go, the data bursts and that sort of thing, and we'll be much more active on social media this time around. You'll also be able to find some text-based articles from time to time on our part of the StarWarsReport.com website, so it's not just the show, you'll also run into sometimes getting to see some uh, other things featured there through the site. Sort of an expansion of and continuation of the legacy of Republic Forces Radio Network with Mark added into the mix uh, with the fond farewell that we're giving to Arnie and Jerry. Um, should be great fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And with that, we close the door on Republic Forces Radio Network. Yet again, I want to thank everyone who's been involved, whether it be anyone who's ever contributed, sent in a voicemail, been on one of the roundtables, been a contributor, a co-host, anything. It has been a wonderful ride. And again, thanks to everyone for being a part of it. We will talk to you soon from Rebels Roundtable. Take care, everyone. Trouble again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has been part of the Republic Forces Radio Network audience. From those of you who have listened since we reviewed The Clone Wars Season 1, Episode 1, to those of you joining us for the first time this episode, on behalf of the entire team, thank you for listening. You will be able to find our archive reviews of previous Clone Wars episodes, as well as reviews of the Clone Wars micro-series, the classic Droids and Ewoks series, and the theatrical Clone Wars movie at www.republicforces.com. And be sure to listen to our other Star Wars podcast, Star Wars Action News, covering all aspects of Star Wars collecting, from figures to high-end collectibles. Star Wars Action News is at swactionnews.com. Republic Forces Radio Network is hosted by Jonathan, Jerry, 
Nathan, Dan, Jen, Arnie, and Barrett. Republic Forces Radio Network, RepublicForces.com, and Star Wars Action News are not affiliated with Lucasfilm or any official Star Wars-related company. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains are copyright and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. Republic Forces Radio Network is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. May the Force be with you all. Okay, Jonathan, say something. La 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 la. Hey, oh, so much better. So much better. Well, it's good. For once, I, my connection actually works. If you didn't have so many kids, Jonathan, you could upgrade your damn Wi-Fi service. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been trying to sell them, but there's these eBay rules. <laughs> Stupid eBay rules. Craigslist, dude. <laughs> Dan, what about you? Crap. I had an awesome thought until I started listening to Barrett, and he took half of it. <laughs> Barrett, why do you always do that, man? And then he calls, but the thing, Jonathan calls on you, too, so it's kind of put you on the spot. The black know, man so, just was, came in and took people from the just white man. I know, man. Well, okay, keep, would, you prefer, would you prefer, like, Paul Mall, everybody trying to scream over each other? Oh, no, absolutely not. Just, no, we know I, that's, that's normal. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just... <laughs> now, you know I prefer that. No, I know you would. Uh, the, as the editor, hell no. <laughs> uh, you know what? Let me... Give me a second to. Uh, All right. Why don't we? Why don't we bounce? Thought. Jen, I'm coming at you. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to just briefly to the point about uh, their technology and so forth, is it the fact that they are so in tune with nature that apparently Padme and Anakin haven't figured out, or maybe this universe doesn't have the technology of freaking birth control? If you're trying to keep your marriage a secret, don't let her get pregnant. Get some Jedi birth control. Just saying. Yeah, I know that'll probably have to be good. Now, with Baron's comments there, have we had our mandatory awkward moment for the episode now? Uh, I think we've It's like I think our 35th, covered. isn't it? <laughs> that was awkward. I don't think that was awkward. You better blame Filoni for the boob window, not me. Let's see. We've hit on the black thing. The, uh, <laughs> no, that's getting cut out. All that stuff gets cut out. No, all that stuff's getting just shifted to the stuff. end. Of yeah, it'll the, just end up at the end of the episode, as always. <laughs> Uh, That's like asking, does pig feet change the way you feel about succotash? Uh, no. <laughs> wow, dude, what the it, hell? It's a difference without a distinction. What? Suffering succotash. <laughs> you know, over the years, this really mean a lot to me. Well, thank you for all the time you've brought into it and all of the viewpoints, yours of... All of them seem to be the most unique and therefore the most cherished. Thank you. Is that the is that the nice way of saying I brought the black viewpoint? <laughs> and <laughs> there it is. <laughs> we knew it was coming. In other words, to also take from Indiana Jones, don't let the next stage in the evolution be Crystal Skull. That indeed is true, but I think that's more on Filoni than you guys. 
the key with the review show is you only can work with what you're given. My hope for you all is that Rebels is as varied and sometimes intelligent a show as Clone Wars was. And that you're not all like reviewing Scooby-Doo. But Scooby-Doo in the original trilogy setting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good lord. When Shaggy shot first. Shaggy? (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right, go. And <laughs> thanks for letting me on the show. Yeah, you're a lot of salami around here, Jen. It's good. <laughs> so I'm totally that, that, not my words, Marjorie's. <laughs> as long as you can keep your uh, your filibusters under four minutes. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, that's never the fault of the host. It's always the fault of the editor. I know, but when he gets on a tangent, it's so hard to break it up. There's no pauses except the ums, huh? Yeah, I, you know <laughs> what? I can, just lo- I can just look at Audacity and go, okay, yeah, there's an um, there's an um, and there's an um. I don't even need to listen for anymore. Uh, ain't that fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so fun, isn't it? That's how I do Star Wars action news now. We don't um anymore, but I can say there's an inhale, there's an inhale, there's an inhale. Oh, there's a popped pee. Just from the Matrix thing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. We've learned to read the wow. code like it's Matrix. We see the green lines. And we don't even see the numbers anymore. There's blonde, brunette, pop key. Wow. Yeah. I can tell Nathan's voice for mine. Okay, that's where I'm rambling. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. My I, rambling's I, easy because it's a big ass block. My, my favorite is sometimes I'm looking. Are little. <laughs> I, I wonder what. But what's nice, Nathan, is every so often you get a um, and that's where I can break it up. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> He's got to breathe. I got to do. I got to do something better about that though. I went through and edited our mini interviews, and I was trying to take out most of my ums. And good God, man, I had no idea I um so damn much. to say goodbye <laughs> to Republic forces. <laughs> wow.